I'm really grateful that I get to be here. Uh, you, you guys, um, I, I like know about you guys in general because Michael and I have talked over the years. Um, and your guys' church is uh, a church that I just kind of have these these ideas of like, there's an extraordinary quality to it and a very ordinary quality to it, both good things. The extraordinary quality is that um, in in like church circles where, uh, you know, churches have kind of made it through the pandemic and we all kind of like, oh my gosh, that was crazy. Your guys' church that you guys started like within your first year, like you were going through a pandemic and you stuck it out together is extraordinary. Uh, Nobody, I never took a, a how to lead a church in a global pandemic class in seminary. Um, they, didn't, they didn't offer that. They might now. Um, we've learned a lot. Uh, but but there's, there's something about like a tenacity and perseverance uh, around a fellowship where you can uh, prioritize following Jesus together to the point where something that is so disruptive can't disrupt the fellowship of a church. And that's, that's beautiful, powerful. So... Uh, Occasionally, I'll get you know keep, I'll keep it anonymous, but occasionally I'll be talking to other pastors. And I'll be like, "There's a church in Salem that that started, and they didn't even get a full year in, and then the pandemic hit, and they're still going." And people are like, "Whoa, that's wild! Holy moly!" So, uh, well done. And then the ordinary part of it. Um, so, uh, uh, the church that I'm pastoring at right now, we've been going for about seven years, and. Um, we're, we're a church that, I don't know, maybe uh, a similar size or so, or at least the first few years definitely was as well. And there's something um, so beautifully ordinary about just a group of people who are following Jesus together as the expression of Christ's body in the world. And, and that's... Um, and and that is uh, it's ordinary. It's it's beautiful, um, and it's been happening for two thousand years. And there hasn't been a group of people like you uh, before. And you are the unique expression of, of Christ's body in the world right now, and, that, and that's a beautiful thing. So I'm really uh, happy to be here. I feel privileged to get to be here and to actually be here in person and not on a, like a video podcast thing that we did in our church's basement. You and Mark had to drive up to Vancouver. And one person watched it. That's, I mean, we'll take it. We'll take it. So um, let me pray really fast, and, th- and then we'll, we'll dive in. Um, yeah, Jesus, uh, you're present with us. Um, your spirit is moving and speaking and at work, and we want to just have that as kind of our posture, oh, just open to you right now. Um, and uh, Jesus, we also want to, to respond to you and what you have to say. So would you speak over us? Would you help us to just kind of have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're up to tonight and what you have for each one of us? Um, and we're just grateful that, that you love and care about us and that you care about what's happening here tonight. Uh, we love you, Jesus. Amen. So Michael introduced me, um, but let's say, state the obvious. We don't really know each other yet. Um, but by the end of this teaching, you'll know things about me, all right? So um, what better way to get to know one another than to read you, a guy, you guys a line from uh, a journal entry I wrote years ago 
we'll, we'll start there. Uh, I've never read this to anyone before except maybe my wife, Hannah. So I'm gonna go out on a limb with you guys, uh, if that's okay. Uh, for context uh, of this like journal entry, my wife, uh, Hannah, was newly pregnant with our first child. Our baby girl was the size of, I think, probably a pinto bean at that time or something like that. And I was a handful of months into helping pastor a new church plant, and I was a month away from starting seminary with Michael. Um, and all of these things, it seemed, uh, were things that God was not only leading my wife and I into, but making a way for us to do. And then one more piece of context that might be helpful for you guys to know is that um, I'm what you could call a recovering idealist. Uh, for many years, my glass was not just half full, it was half full with the best water you could ever imagine. So that's gonna explain this journal entry. So one day, uh, exactly on the day of August 17th, 2016, I wrote the line, I'm excited to learn more about giving up control in my life when my child is born. <laughs> yeah, a couple of people chuckled today. Yeah. So yeah, fast forward to the months after my daughter was born and I was walking up and down our hallway at 1 a.m. with a colicky, screaming infant that was having a hard time, to say the least. Um, not so exciting, losing that control of my life. Uh, along with that, uh, the first year of my daughter's life was the last year of my father-in-law's life due to cancer. And here I was trying to balance school, work, family, sickness, and death, and trying to connect with God. Because, you know, I'm a pastor, and part of my job involves my own faith, and yet all of my rhythms of connecting with Jesus had been blown up uh, with the fatigue and grief and over, overall busyness of life. Um, when I did get quiet time, I, I just wanted to sleep, and at times I would obviously just fall asleep trying to have quiet time with Jesus. Um, and thankfully, uh, there's another leader in our church, uh, a guy a couple seasons of life ahead of me. He pulled me aside one day and said, man, I remember having my first kid and how it threw my life and, and rhythms with God in, into chaos. And let me offer you a bit of encouragement. These are the seasons of life where you let go of any notions of earning God's grace and instead you practice resting in it. And sometimes people share advice and it goes in one ear and out the other, and then sometimes it sits in your heart and your mind and resonates deeply with you. And this was one of those times. And I've gone on to explore and experience more hectic, crazy, hard seasons of life, and I've walked with others through their own. And um, experiencing these seasons of life and observing them in others, you know, getting to witness what God is up to specifically because of those kinds of seasons of life has been hugely encouraging. So I, I'm hanging out with you guys tonight, not as um, some expert or guru that has all the answers. Um, I'm coming here tonight as a brother in Christ, uh, wanting to hopefully encourage you guys through different seasons of life, especially if you're finding yourself in a, in a hard and or busy one, when it feels it's really difficult to connect with God in a meaningful way. If you're not currently in a hard or busy season of life, you feel like you're thriving with space and rhythms in your life, then good. Um, for you, this teaching might be more of something that builds a, a paradigm for future seasons of life, because spoiler alert, you'll probably struggle sometime in the future, 
or it can even help uh, you view in a different way previous seasons of life that you've been through that were hard or, or busy, you know, maybe wondering what, what God was doing through it all. So I want you guys, if you're up for it, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, so as you guys are turning there, um, before we start reading from the text, I just want to acknowledge something uh, together with you all. Typically, in American Protestant churches, which yours is, mine is, the paradigm for practicing spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading usually revolves around a morning quiet time. Uh, sometimes you can get away with an evening session, but usually the ideal that gets shared is, is that kind of quiet morning time, and it's, and it's not a bad one. Uh, there is something important about focusing your attention on Jesus through the scriptures and prayer, especially before you start your day. Uh, there's something that can be powerfully grounding and formative in those moments. Jesus often went off by himself to pray, sometimes early in the morning. So it, it's become a kind of ideal to aim at. You can feel pretty good with where you're at if you have this consistent time with Jesus, typically in the morning. And you know, maybe the ideal of spiritual disciplines is a bit different for you, that's okay. My point really is that there are these ideals that we strive for. What happens when you don't hit your ideal for a day? or a week, or a month. What do you think of yourself? What do you imagine God thinks about you? The prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, he's just experienced this like monumental mountain top moment, literally a mountaintop experience as God shows up in a powerful way to turn Israel from rebellion and to repentance. It's powerful. And uh, the powers that be, these royal authorities, namely the queen of Israel, are not happy. In fact, uh, she wants to kill Elijah. So look down at 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he, he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah is one of the most important, influential prophets in all of Scripture. And here he is praying to die, and then he falls asleep. And he does not respond to what's happening with faithful perseverance. He does not respond with fasting and prayer through the night. He wants to give up, and then he goes to sleep. If you keep reading, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. So God responds to Elijah's weakness with care for him. In this story, God provides food and water for Elijah in the middle of the wilderness, and Elijah gets up, eats, and drinks. And then he doesn't sing a psalm of praise. He doesn't feel emboldened. He goes back to sleep goes on, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. 
So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. Again, an angel from God encourages Elijah to continue to eat and drink because, and I quote, the journey is too much for you. On his own, Elijah can't make the journey God wants him to make. On his own, Elijah can only muster a prayer of despair and to fall asleep. On his own, Elijah is too weak. And God acknowledges this and doesn't condemn him. Instead, God provides strength for Elijah in the form of food and water. Uh, what if, just go with me here, what if that's God's response when we struggle to connect with him? When we're busy, tired, depressed, grieved, and the faith we can muster looks like a brief prayer of despair and exhaustion. What if God responds to us not with disappointment, but strengthening? an acknowledgement that on our own, we're too weak for this moment, for this season of life that we're in. Okay, so then do we just give up trying to connect with God through prayer and reading the scriptures when we're going through a rough patch? You know, give in and say, you know, I'm too tired, I'm too busy, I'm too sad to connect with God, so I guess what this dude who happened to come on this Sunday is saying is that I don't need to try anything, I should just give up. Not quite, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, there's this story that uh, the priest Ronald Rollheiser shares in his book, Domestic Monastery. He recounts a story of an Italian author who spent about 10 years living as a hermit in the Sahara Desert. Uh, there, this author spent his time in solitude, prayer, and translating the Bible into a local dialect. And, and this had a profound impact on his spiritual formation that uh, for me is really hard to imagine. 10 years focusing on prayer, solitude, and Bible translation. And yet, as Rollheiser tells the story, when this hermit went back to his home in Italy, he had a shocking realization. His mother, who had raised him and his siblings in a quiet faith, had been formed in many of the ways he had been by living in the desert for 10 years. Her desert solitude was her faithfulness in parenting. She had become a kind, gentle woman connected with God through, through the mundane and often out of sight responsibilities of raising a family and caring for a household. So Rollheiser draws this conclusion. Uh, he says, quote, what this taught was not that there was anything wrong with what he had been doing in living as a hermit. The lesson was rather that there was something wonderfully right about what his mother had been doing all these years as she lived the interrupted life amidst, amidst the noise and incessant demands of small children. He had been in a monastery, but so, so had she. The story went on to inspire Rollheiser's book, Domestic Monastery, and that word monastery may hit you a certain way, uh, so let's talk about it for a couple of minutes and stick with me. Uh, be, this might feel like a rabbit trail, but we're going somewhere with this. So, um, okay, let's get to know each other a little bit more. Uh, for me, I love the idea of monasteries. Um, confession time now. You've read a part of my journal. Now you get to hear a confession of mine. Uh, I once told my wife that if I were born in the Middle Ages, 
I hope I would be a Christian celibate monk spending the majority of my life in a monastery. And for some reason, she didn't give me a super enthusiastic response when I told her that. But then I studied church history in seminary and I learned about kind of the ebb and flow of monasticism ranging from beautiful and serious about following Jesus to outlandishly corrupt and little more than money-making organizations. And, And talking to a mentor much wiser than myself about monasticism, he asked how many books I had read from monks Uh, you know, the people actually living in the monasteries, and I could count them on one hand. And he, being much more familiar with monasticism, remarked, oh, well, you know, they have a really strong tradition of talking about how hard it is to live in community with other people. And as he said that, he pulled a book off his bookshelf and like flipped it open, almost like he had it saved just for that moment. And, and he uh, went on to quote it, and I'm paraphrasing because I have no idea what book or, or who wrote it, but I'm paraphrasing this. It essentially said, what spending your life living in a monastery teaches you is that people suck and God uses them to teach you how to love others better. And you know what, I heard that and I thought, you know, on second thought, maybe being like a middle ages peasant farmer isn't so bad after all. Um, I say all that because we might have a lot of different ideas, good or bad, realistic or idealistic about a monastery, but for Rollheiser, he finds in the spiritual formation that happens in a monastery a kind of paradigm for understanding challenging times in our lives when it seems hopeless that we would meet our ideals and goals for connecting with God through practicing spiritual disciplines like prayer and scripture reading. So Rollheiser has this to say about monasteries. What is a monastery? A monastery is not so much a place set apart for monks and nuns as it is a place set apart, period. It is also a place to learn the value of powerlessness and a place to learn that time is not ours, but God's. About 1,500 years of church history have involved followers of Jesus utilizing monasteries as, among other things, a way to be shaped into Christ-likeness. Imperfectly, for sure, but still a steady part of what the church has been in the world. And the rhythms of, of life in the monastery are often announced via bells. Bells ring and the monks and nuns know it's time for a different task and part of the day. And the the idea behind the bell was that when the bell rang, you immediately stopped whatever you were doing, whether gardening or writing a letter or what have you stopped in that moment. It was important to heed the bell immediately as an action that reminded the monk or the nun that time was not theirs. Time is God's. And this practice challenged them to prioritize God's agenda over their own. And I don't think that's a bad lesson to teach humans. Uh, We certainly can get wrapped up in our plans and agendas. If you will, uh, go ahead and finish this cultural uh, proverb. Time is money, yes. Time is a commodity to be used as we see fit. And maybe when you hear this, you think, oh man, is this a sermon about my priorities and how to spend my time? Yeah, we could talk about that tonight. Processing our priorities can help us recenter on God's agenda rather than ours, that's good. Instead, I wanna point out how you're already spending your time in the way God has led you, whether generally or with specificity. Maybe you're working a job with long hours, trying to do right by paying your bills, 
you know, and, and, you know, maybe you're just trying to make it through a tough season or, or just trying to provide a, a decent living for your loved ones. Maybe you're raising kids or you're pursuing uh, schooling as you felt led. And all of that stuff is or at least can be good and stuff that God has asked you to do. And yet at times it can feel like it goes beyond our capacity to have both attention to our responsibilities and devoted time to direct our attention to God. Your sleep is disrupted by kids or work or studying. You often feel stressed or distracted when it comes to reading the Bible or prayer when you actually have or or make time for it. And maybe there's the idea in the back of your mind that God is frustrated with you or deeply disappointed or distant because of these struggles of yours. Even though, in part, you're just trying to live a good life. Follow Jesus. But the, the journey of balancing life responsibilities and spirituality just feels like too much for you. Maybe a monastery has something to teach you. Maybe God has special intentional work he wants to do in you because you feel these tensions, not in spite of them. Your life responsibilities, you, you know, you're, you're doing the best to um, maintain and, and, and maybe those responsibilities that you're, that you're working at, maybe those are your monastery bells. They remind you that time is not yours, it's God's. You know, the toddler clinging to your leg, always wanting your attention, a monastery bell. God's reminder that time is not yours, it's his. Or the work responsibilities or schedule that feels like a lot right now. That's God's reminder to you that time is his and not yours. The studying, the reading, the tests, an invitation to submit your time and agenda to God. And it could be that the the very things that feel at odds with the spirituality that needs a quiet morning of prayer and scripture are actually the very things that God wants to meet with you through and to form you in a way that a quiet time in the morning just can't. It can be easy for us to unintentionally put our relationship with God kind of in a box. Um, You know, there are certain times that we connect with him. You know, whatever rhythm and routine we have throughout the week of prayer and Bible, maybe you're a part of a church group, and then on Sundays at church like tonight. Uh, But then it, it, it can seem like those are all God's spaces and all the rest of our lives he's just kind of adjacent to, almost like a next door neighbor not quite present in the day-to-day, whether it's boredom or stress or the ups and downs. But one picture of mature Christian spirituality that has been influential down through the church is the, the idea that as we grow in Christ-likeness, the lines begin to get fuzzy between focused time with God and the rest of our everyday lives. That prayer and, and Bible in the morning are the beginning of the conversation with God, and that conversation just continues throughout the day as we're at work or parenting or at school or just trying to make our way through the world. And the things we think would distract us from this conversation with God um, become the very reminders of this ongoing interaction with God throughout our days. 
This has been called practicing the presence of God. It's, it's drawn from the idea of Paul's exhortation to the church in Thessalonica to pr- pray continually or pray without ceasing, which can, I, th- I think it can sound kind of lofty, uh, at least on the surface. You know, when, uh, when my three-year-old is having a tantrum in a way that only three or, three-year-olds can, I'm not typically in the frame of mind of prayer and deep connectedness with God. In my best parenting moments, I'm being patient and kind and corrective to my three-year-old to help her calm down. In my worst moments, usually involving a tantrum in a public place, I'm reacting out of my embarrassment and prayer really isn't on my mind. But I think we can kind of grasp this concept of practicing the presence of God pretty easily. Show of hands, how many of you have prayed while driving in the car? Yeah, that's pretty much everyone. Um, You know, you're driving, hopefully safely with your eyes open on the road. Uh, you, You navigate your way to your destination as is typical, and in that space, you're also in prayer, connected with God, but also driving your car, almost as if you're in two places at once. Uh, You're with God, and then you're just in your car driving. And the idea of practicing the presence of God captured the imaginations of Catholics and Protestants alike through a book called The Practice of the Presence of God, drawing from the life of an otherwise anonymous monastery cook in the 1600s named Brother Lawrence. His connectedness with God as he worked in the kitchen caught the attention of many people who would just come to watch him and to converse with him and witness this sort of being in two places at once kind of connectedness with God, prayer without ceasing. He wasn't a grand theologian. He was not an influential priest. He was a humble cook. And as he cooked for people, he stayed connected with God. And I think that's the trajectory of, of Christ-likeness, not, not something you fake or you try really hard at for a couple of hours and then you give up, but something that God works in you and forms you into this kind of person, a, a kind of quiet way of, of being. And what would that look like for you in your life? I mean, how do you even start heading in that direction, right? Before we go there though, uh, you know, let me say more to let you guys know me a little bit better. Um, so about eight months ago, I was at home on a hot, windy Friday night studying. Uh, after like a year long process, it seemed Jesus was leading me uh, to go back to school for a degree in mental health counseling to add to my vocation as pastor. Um, And I felt a little bit betrayed because I went to seminary for five years, uh, a bunch of those years with Michael. I graduated and then Jesus led me back to school, which I'm like, isn't five years enough? But apparently not. So I was at home and as I studied on that Friday, you know, I was three days away from starting school once again, this thing that, that I felt Jesus had been leading me into. My wife, Hannah, and I had been preparing for the change in our season of life. We were on the same page and ready for this challenge. My wife was out of the house hanging out with friends. My two girls, five and two years old at the time, were asleep in their beds. And in just one moment, uh, my life went from me reading a textbook in a quiet house 
to uh, grabbing my two girls as we ran out of the house with the row of townhouses we live in engulfed in flames, just like that. Everyone in all the houses were thankfully safe, but in just a blink of an eye, we went from having a home to not having a home. We went from rhythms of connection with each other and our neighbors and God to everything being different and harder. My Bible and journals, ways I connected with God were either unsalvageable or will always smell of smoke. Connection with God became prayers of desperation in the midst of crisis and turmoil and trauma and the subsequent months of insurance and policy limits of ha and having to rebuild our house and uncertainty about what the heck we're even doing in this and then our own baggage from our respective stories that seems to get reopened and dumped out in this situation. The, this journey is too much for us. We are too weak. And over these eight months, as we're closer to the end of all of this than the beginning, it's interesting to see how God has worked to change me, to grow my trust in him that even if I don't have the energy, wisdom, or awareness to ask for things for my family, that he is so kind and generous to provide for our needs in very creative ways, and he has done so in spades to hear his whisper in my frustration and despair, embarrassment, or, or failures through all of this, to draw my gaze, even if for a brief moment, to his loving face, to see his joy and delight flowing in me as I get to witness my two girls giggle and laugh and play, to hug them and to hold them, what a gift, and sometimes, uh, maybe even a lot of times, it feels like all I can muster is a thank you, Father, or Father, please help. And quite frankly, uh, you know, as I talk about this stuff in a sermon, uh, you know, connection and monastery bells and practicing the presence of God, I, I've had to learn and, and, and unlearn and relearn ways God wants to work this in me. And I'm still learning and hopefully will continue to learn. And I tell this story not as an example of how I've overcome adversity and learned spiritual maturity. Um, quite frankly, I feel very weak and very small through all of this. I tell this story as an example for my own life that God really is radically kind and patient with us. That he works oftentimes best in our weakness. When we are weak, then his strength is shown. And to end, I just have some practical encouragements to you guys about your spiritual lives that could be helpful. Take them or leave them. Um, something I'm really struck by is that Christian brothers and sisters who have been looked up to throughout church history as having attained some type of kind of like noteworthy maturity and formation in Christ, you know, a guy like Brother Lawrence, uh, who, who we were just talking about, they didn't set aside the very basics of Bible reading and prayer. Rhythms and routines matter for our hearts and minds. So if you're in a season where you're reading your Bible with hunger, your prayer time feels effortless and connected with God, keep doing whatever it is you're doing. Keep stewarding this season of your life with God. Press into that. 
If you're in a season that isn't quite like that, where it feels disconnected or at least experiencing a connection with God seems a lot harder, I'd encourage you to persevere in the rhythms and routines of connection or or to create new ones if they've fallen by the wayside. Now get this, um, I'm going to encourage you to do some things that might seem counterintuitive to the trajectory of this story, call it a twist ending, but hang with me for a moment. Uh, First thing is, is, I think it's really valuable to start your day Uh, your first waking moments, if possible, with your attention on God in some way. Not waking up and rolling out of bed to make coffee, not waking up and checking emails on your phone or scrolling through a social media feed, but your eyes open and you do something to fix your gaze onto Jesus. Now, what I want you to do, though, is if you have in the back of your mind that that idea that you need a certain amount of time in prayer or Bible reading to make it, you know, quote unquote, worth it or for God to be pleased by it, go ahead and just toss that out the back door of your mind. In a season where you feel too weak for the journey that you're on, start your day with a prayer for strength or help or grace that lasts a few moments and then start your day. See God show up in your day. Or, you know, you can open the Bible app or physical Bible and then just read a psalm. Or there are apps like Lectio 365 that help you walk through prayer and meditating on the scripture so you don't even have to decide what you're doing. You can just be led through something, a way to connect with God. Allow God to meet you in your weakness without trying to posture a strength that both both you and he knows that you don't have. Don't be discouraged if this is an imperfect rhythm. Um, Gosh, you guys are getting to, to know me pretty well. Uh, currently in my season of life, my three, three-year-old needs help with toilet stuff, at, at least like going number two, uh, because her fine motor skills aren't quite yet developed enough to handle that, so it's really to everyone's benefit if we help her out. Um, and good grief, it's not an uncommon thing for half an hour or an hour before my alarm is set to go off in the morning for me to wake up to her little voice yelling from the bathroom, Dad, will you wipe my bottom? <laughs> and I usually start my morning first thing with a chapter of scripture and a short prayer over my family, but, but those mornings, my day begins with toilet paper and at best, a grumpy prayer for patience. In this season, for you... You know, it can just look like a brief prayer or a quick read through of a short psalm. Do not get stuck in whether this is a success or failure. I don't really think God is is, um, conceptualizing this situation on those terms. In a different season of life, one with less hardship or busyness, you might be waking up and spending an hour in prayer and in the scriptures, feeling like there's almost like an effortlessness to it. Now, If you start your day with your attention on Jesus in some way, then you have a touch point with God in the morning. And here's where a busy, hard season of life can actually draw you closer to Jesus in some unique ways if you're up for it. It can be an opportunity to intentionally turn your attention to God throughout your day, blurring any lines that you may have unintentionally drawn that keep Jesus at arm's length when you're not doing some sort of overt spiritual time with him. He can begin to show up in the boredom and the stress and the fatigue and the frustration of your everyday life. You know, find your monastery bells, the things in your daily responsibilities that can turn your attention to God even for a moment. You know, as you're making your kids' lunch, 
it's your reminder to simply think of God, you know, to say a quick prayer of gratitude or request for patience or strength, a rhythm that happens every day while you make lunch. Or it's on a break at work, you go out to your car to meditate on a verse of scripture or to read a short devotional, or you set an alarm on your phone or watch as a reminder to turn your attention to God at a certain time of day every day. Uh, Monastery bells for me in the past have looked quite differently. Uh, I used to work at a grocery store stocking shelves in the dairy department, and during part of my day where I'd fill certain uh, products on the shelf, I would start to quietly sing the doxology, you know, praise God from whom all, I won't sing it because I'm not good. I sing sing it very quietly for everyone's benefit. So um, sometimes I'd sing it through once and that's all I could muster. Um, Sometimes I'd sing it a dozen times. And um, gosh, when I was writing this teaching, I am letting you guys know a lot about me. Um, And so uh, at times I would sing this doxology uh, a lot of times and and then I would make up my own lyrics to it depending on the day and what I was thankful for. Again, not good, I'm not a lyricist and I sang them very quietly, nobody would ever know what I was singing. Um, But I would just stand there putting Yo Play Yogurt on the shelf, singing the doxology, making up lyrics for it. And as silly as that sounds, uh, I look back on that as meaningful. Just, just enjoying the, the connection with Jesus I developed through that rhythm. And my last encouragement for you guys then along with, you know, having a first thing in the morning, directing your attention to God and, and then finding your monastery bells throughout the day would be to end your day with your attention fixed on God. Again, this could be a prayer, uh, a, a reading a story of the scripture or a short kind of prayer journal entry. And if you did these three things, a morning time, time throughout the day with your attention on God and an evening time, someone could look at a breakdown of how you spend your minutes and hours during the day and it might feel unimpressive or embarrassing. That's all the time you spend with God. In this season, yeah. In the next season of life, hopefully you'll have more space to do more, but for now, yes. And trust that God will not only meet you in this season of weakness where the journey is too much for you, but, but that he will use it for good to shape you into the image of Christ. And trust that when God thinks you're ready and when you've been strengthened enough, he'll lead you into doing more. Uh, to be frank with you guys about the process of like reflecting and, and praying over this teaching, I was, I was actually kind of a bit hesitant for a couple of reasons. Um, first reason is I, I don't want to lead people into reasons to avoid uh, Jesus. Whether that's because of sin or an unwillingness to follow Jesus into challenging, stretching growth, or there's something else going on. It seems like there's a fine line between our own weakness and then using our own weakness as a reason to keep Jesus at arm's length because we don't want to do what he wants us to do. And I also acknowledge that there can be resistance to this because we don't want to admit our weakness. Or we're afraid that if we do, we'll be consumed by our weakness, so we buckle down and try even harder. If we admit our weakness, will everything fall apart? 
I know I've been in both camps throughout the years. Sometimes it feels like in both camps at once. And this is where my last encouragement to you will be. We all need people in our lives, a, a pastor, a counselor, a small group, a friend, a spouse who loves Jesus and who are willing to, uh, and who we are willing to receive uh, correction from. Someone you can say, who can say to you, and you'll hear them say, you know, it seems like you're just trying to avoid Jesus right now, not just trying to make it through a tough season. Or someone who can say, hey, listen, your pride or your fear of failure is, is kind of wrecking your life here. Uh, I, I think you need to admit to yourself that, that you're struggling. It's why even in our individual rhythms with God, we need a community around us to help us discern what God is doing in our lives, to test what we feel like God is leading us to do. We don't have to struggle alone. And the beautiful thing is, even if it seems no one is around to help us, um, God is there. You can call out to him even if you haven't been connecting with him recently. Ultimately, our lives and our Christ-likeness is God's responsibility. He graciously invites us to participate in the, in the process of formation and sanctification, but ultimately, he's the one that's going to do the work in us. This is God's spirit inspiring Paul to write these words in Philippians 1, verse 6 being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me pray over you guys tonight. Father, I'm, I'm grateful that you really respond to us with an honesty that takes into account where we're at, not where we think we should be or where we want to be, but really actually where we are at. And that can be hard sometimes because uh, it would be really nice to kind of um, have an appearance of being better off than we are. But again, Father, it's your kindness that deals with us honestly. And we just wanna say thank you for that. Would you, by your spirit, um, bring comfort where there needs to be comfort, to bring wisdom where there needs to be wisdom, to bring uh, just uh, next steps where people need next steps? And ultimately, Father, would we know you as the God who provides for us when we're weak, when we're weary, when our journey is too much, that you provide for us and that you strengthen us. You don't condemn us. You're not impatient with us, but you allow us our weaknesses. You allow us to be fallen people. You deal with us there, and then you bring Christ-likeness into us. You form us. We're grateful for that, and we just wanted to yield ourselves before you the best we can. Would you meet us where we're at, Father? We love you. Amen.